About 800 years ago, a group of nomads in Central Asia banded together under the control of one man. A man they came to call the Universal Ruler. A man they came to call Genghis Khan. For most people, or at least the people who know something of Genghis Khan, that's about where Mongolian history starts. In 1206, when he was probably in his mid-40s, Genghis Khan founded the Mongol Empire and ruled it for the next two decades. After he died, his successors expanded that empire until it reached all the way across Asia and into Europe. It even found its way south as far as the Persian Gulf on the other side of Iran. By the time it reached its height, about 40 years after Genghis died, the Mongol Empire was more than twice as large as the Empire of Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire combined. All told, it controlled almost one-sixth of all the land on Earth. That's the history we have today, but it's not the history some people prefer. During the Cold War, when the Soviet Union controlled Mongolia, the government suppressed information about Genghis Khan. They blocked people from visiting his birthplace and actually went so far as to put a tank base on the only road that led there. During that time, even speaking the Khan's name was forbidden. The history of the Mongol Empire is a history of a group of nomadic tribes conquering lands that include modern-day Russia and modern-day China. It was a history that some people from those countries wish you didn't remember. It was Russia during the Cold War that suppressed the history, but even today, in modern China, you can get deported on charges of terrorism for so much as watching a documentary about Genghis Khan. So, how do you know that your history, the stories you've always been taught, how do you know those stories are true? With countries censoring information to hide undesirable parts of history, how do you know that you have the real version, the version of history that really happened? Suppression was a strategy during the Cold War, but it wasn't the only option. If the history is already out there, already well-known, sometimes people might just disguise it. They might hide it in plain sight, right where it can be seen, but with a bunch of other versions of history all around it, so no one knows which one's right. And what about the really old stories where this confusion might have been going on for a long time? What about that history? The Cherokee, a Native American tribe who lived in Georgia, Tennessee, and the Carolinas, the Cherokee have a story they tell about when the world was created. In their story, the world was once dark and covered in water. They say there was no land, no place for anything to live, until a water beetle dove down below the surface and came back up with some mud. In the story, the mud, they say, it grew to become an island that we call the Earth. That isn't the story you find in books on world history. But maybe you should. The Cherokee aren't the only ones who tell it. A version of their story, of something that dives down to bring up land, appears so often around the world, researchers have a whole category, a group of stories, about earth divers, just to keep track of the different versions that follow this pattern. But there are other stories, too. 
In Nigeria, they tell a story about a supreme god who ruled over many other minor gods. At the start of the story, the world was also covered in water, but instead of a water beetle, some of the minor gods worked together to make a golden chain that they could lower from the sky. One of the gods climbed down the chain, and when he reached the surface of the ocean, he put sand onto the sea, and it spread out to become the world we know today. In Mexico, the Mixtec, a tribe older than the Aztec, they used to tell a story about when the Earth was once nothing but a planet covered in mud. In their story, land only appeared when two gods made a cliff so they could have a place to live. There are a lot of different versions of history, and they have a lot of conflicts. In India, the Hindu talk about a world that was nothing but death and hunger. A creator appeared and made water. The water frothed and formed land. In China, the story starts with an egg containing a giant inside it. The giant grew too big, broke out of the egg, and then pushed the heavier and lighter parts of it apart to make the earth and the sky. Further south, in New Zealand, it's also a story of the earth and the sky, but rather than parts of an egg, it's two parents who held each other so close that the world was covered in darkness. In that story, one of their sons has to push the parents apart to finally let light into the world. There are stories from the Bantu in South Africa about humans springing out of a broken-off reed. There are stories from Greece about a universe that began as a great abyss until things like desire appeared. There are stories from the North, from the Vikings, about a giant who formed from melting ice. How do you figure out the right version of history when there are stories from all around the world and those stories don't agree? James Usher was an Irish archbishop in the Anglican Church. Usher spent most of his life gathering together stories from history, and he managed to work out a timeline that had a date for the creation of the world. When he had it all together, Usher published a book in Latin in 1650, and just after the turn of the next century in 1701, a version of his timeline for history was printed in a new edition of the King James Bible. From that printing, Usher's dates his version of history, it became a standard history that was used in the Western world for the next two centuries. Taken together with all of these stories, there are too many similarities for it to be a coincidence. There's probably some grain of truth in there. But then what? When the stories disagree, which one do you follow? Which one do you believe? Did the world start with mud or ice or water or darkness? Did it begin in the distant past, long before dates and times? Or, as James Usher thought, did history start on September 21, 4004 BC? This problem we have today, this problem of too many histories, this is nothing new. Three and a half thousand years ago, when Genesis was being written, it was already a problem. The Bible begins with Genesis, and Genesis starts with Moses. Now, there's a lot to the story of Moses. There's a lot of backstory. But I'm going to skip over most of that for now, because I want to start when Moses 
was about 80 years old and just beginning his third career. By the time Moses was 80, he'd spent a few decades as royalty and a few decades as a shepherd in exile. Now, coming back, he's the first leader of a group, estimates vary about this, but a group of maybe two million former slaves. A group of slaves that are his extended family. That's about where the story picks up. When most people are enjoying retirement, Moses has just become the leader of a nation of slaves, including families and flocks and herds and a whole baggage train of carts and carriages, and he's leading them east, going away from Egypt into the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. In this part of the story, the whole nation has just escaped across the Red Sea, and now, for the first time, no one's following them, and Moses, maybe here, has a bit of a breather. He has a moment for him to get everything together. This was his chance to get everyone on the same page about family history. That's most of the book of Genesis. But because everything is such a mess, because people are coming out of slavery and they don't have the background for it, Moses starts the story in Genesis even earlier. Moses goes back and starts by getting everyone on the same page about world history. In the world where Moses lived, different beliefs about the past changed everything about life in the present. Your background could determine your place in the world. It set the borders of empires. The clashes between armies to the people fighting, that was a clash between religions, a clash between gods. For Moses, getting world history right, that had to be the first step because history mattered. But which history do you use? From where Moses was, if you went back to Egypt, you got one version. The Egyptians believed the world was once covered in dark water. At some point in the past, an island rose up out of the water with a god standing on it. The god gave birth to some other gods who wandered off to explore. Later in the story, when all the gods were reunited, one of them shed tears of happiness that fell onto the ground and made the first humans. That was the history in Egypt. That's what they believed. If you went against that history, you were arguing against the Egyptian national religion. That was to the west. To the north of Moses, in Canaan, we call it Palestine, but it wasn't called that until long after Moses. In Canaan, there was a different religion. In that version, a group of more than 230 gods are involved in a story that tells of Baal, the god of thunder and rain, refusing to submit to the tyrannical god of the sea. Using weapons gained from another of the gods, Baal fights and wins the battle, becoming the new ruler of the gods. In parts of Canaan, that was the religion. That was their history of the world. If you left Canaan behind and went east, down along the Euphrates River, you'd eventually come to Babylon. In Babylon, there was yet another version of history. In their story, the world began with two gods, a god of salt water and a god of fresh water. These two gods gave birth to a bunch of other gods, and if I skip over some details of war and revenge, eventually Marduk, a third-generation god, gets recruited to lead the fight against the goddess of salt water and her army of monsters. In the climax of the story, Marduk wins the final battle, kills the mother goddess, and uses her body to make the land and the sky. Later on, in another part of the story, all the gods start complaining about how hard their lives are, and Marduk has some of them make humans to do the work for them. 
that's the story. In Babylon, the earth was made from the dead body of a god, and humans were designed to be slave labor. These three histories were probably around the area when Moses was alive, and Moses may well have known all of them. Like every other former slave in the nation he led, Moses was born in Egypt. His family had spent centuries living there, and they were steeped in the stories of Egyptian gods and the ceremonies at Egyptian temples. Before they moved to Egypt, they spent 200 years in and around Canaan, perhaps living and marrying among the people who believed those stories about Baal. If you go even further back, before the family even moved to Canaan, Abraham, the father of the whole nation, he once lived near Babylon. Abraham probably heard stories about Marduk when he was a boy, and those stories ran deep. If you look at the family names, Abraham's father and Abraham's wife were both named after Babylonian gods. And now here Moses was, 400 years later, and he needs to explain world history to a group of people who have all of these other stories floating around and confusing things. Moses was there in the desert, at the crossroads between one and another religion, religions that were supported by the superpowers in his day. And Moses had a choice about what history, what religion, he should teach his new nation. Pause there for a minute. Think about his situation. If you were Moses, if you had a group of ex-slaves that you were leading, and you were in the desert with at least three different religions surrounding you, wouldn't you be tempted to wonder if you could use those other religions to your advantage? Egypt was clearly out of the question. Moses' nation was fleeing from Egypt. Pharaoh was in charge of that religion, and they just rebelled against him. So you couldn't claim that was your religion. But what about these other stories? What about telling everyone to believe the Babylonian version of history? What about throwing in your lot with them? If you were of the same religion, wouldn't the Babylonians maybe be pretty happy to send some weapons and things your way? Maybe they'd like to arm a bunch of slaves who were angry at Egypt. Or maybe, since you plan to move north anyway, since the goal is to live in Canaan, maybe right now you present yourself as an ally of that religion. Maybe you read up some about Baal. That works less well. I mean, it's going to be hard to avoid looking like it's an invasion, but you never know. Maybe being of the same religion would soften the blow, keep you from having to go to war when you moved in. I mean, it's worth a shot, right? If you're Moses, maybe those ideas cross your mind. But that's not what happens. Besides leaving slavery, leaving Egypt behind, that was a religious decision. Moses knew those other histories and the religions that came from them were wrong. And now, with this breather in the desert, Moses had a chance to explain what history was right. But he had to be careful. Among all those former slaves, there were probably a lot of people who still liked the Egyptian religion. There were maybe people who preferred to follow the history from Canaan or the religion of Babylon. And for Moses, that was a problem. In the 1930s, during the Spanish Civil War, Emilio Mola Vidal moved four columns of troops in to attack the loyalist-held city of Madrid. 
he didn't think he would win using those columns, but instead referred to a fifth column, his allies that were inside the city. He was saying there were saboteurs and spies in the ranks of his enemy already inside Madrid. And with the followers of these other religions, Moses probably had some of those types of people in his ranks, among that crowd of former slaves. Just dismissing those other histories and religions, that might lead to a lot of angry people. Religion is a core belief. So Moses had to be careful how he went about telling them they were wrong, because who knows how two million people might react when you tell them that everything they know is a lie. Moses was going to tell them they were wrong, but he was going to do it systematically. He was going to tell them the story in a way that took apart those other religions, so there was nothing left when he replaced it with something else. According to Moses, the world began formless and void and dark. In the original language, Moses used words that meant things like empty or waste. Moses is describing some scene of nothingness, some idea of a world or a universe that was shapeless and empty. It's hard to know how to describe this part of the story. It's so far from what we're used to, so far from what we've experienced. It's hard to get a picture of what Moses is talking about, but start by thinking about taking a tour of a cave. If you go to a cave, the guide probably takes you down through some entrance and then around through lots of passageways and caverns. The path twists and turns until you've been underground for a while, the entrance is far away, and then the guide turns off the lights. The human eye is actually pretty good at night vision. It takes about a half an hour to adjust, but the retina of a human eye can detect a single photon of light hitting it, and our brains register the signal when we get five to nine photons showing up in less than a tenth of a second. If you're on this cave tour, they take you far away from the entrance to make sure there's no light, no photons, that can bounce their way down to you. They want to make sure your eyes are useless. That's the blackness Moses is describing. But you have to take that idea further. In a cave, even when you can't see, you can still feel and smell and hear things. Try to imagine that darkness, but extend the idea to your other senses. Imagine everything is numb. Imagine you can't smell anything. Imagine the world is silent. If you go to the Orfield Laboratories in Minnesota, there's a soundproof room that holds the record for being the quietest place on Earth. Ears in a quiet room are a lot like eyes on a dark night. Inside that room, in the silence, your ears strain to hear something, to hear anything. And with no sound coming from outside the room, they tune into quieter and quieter sounds that are coming from inside the room. You hear your heart beating. You hear noises from your stomach and the sound of blood in your veins. If you moved a knee or an elbow, you might hear bone and cartilage rubbing against one another. NASA sends astronauts to this lab to help adjust them to the silence of space. That lab is so quiet, there's such an absence of sound, it makes most people uncomfortable. Most people don't like being there. That's what I think Moses is trying to explain. It's 
like that abyss from Greek history. And then over this formless void, Moses describes God hovering. And as he hovers there, he creates light. And the earth, whatever it was, it could now be seen for the first time. In 1946, just after the end of World War II, a V-2 rocket was equipped with a camera and launched into the upper atmosphere. That was when we got our first pictures of the Earth from space. That was the first time people had an aerial view of the planet. In the last 70 years, we've gotten used to what the Earth looks like, but right here, when God created light, that Earth wouldn't be what we're used to. In the picture Moses describes, the whole place was covered in water, water that was probably a little over a mile and a half deep, and it was everywhere. This might not be right, but think of it a little like one of those scenes you sometimes see of astronauts playing around with liquids in zero gravity. The astronaut squeezes something out of a tube, and it floats into a perfect sphere, just sitting there in the cabin, all round and smooth and reflective. That's what I picture. But this scene is more than just a nice picture. It's the first poke at those other religions. In Egypt and Babylon, the gods came up, out of the ocean. In Moses' story, God starts above it. And then Moses moves on to the second day of creation. As I picture it, on the second day, if you could have stood on the surface of the water with light shining all around you, the sea would be a deep blue, the kind of blue you get when you're way out in the ocean and the water around you is really deep. And it would be like that all the way to the horizon. But there at the horizon, it would meet a black sky. White light is a spectrum of colors. It goes from some too short to see through what we call the visible range and then into the long part, the infrared, the, the part we think of as heat. The narrow band in the middle, that visible part, that ranges from short blue light to long red light. When we look at the sky today, it's blue because the blue part of the spectrum is absorbed and scattered as it comes through the air, while the green and red aren't really affected. Here, on day two, there was no air, no atmosphere, no particles getting in the way. There was no light being scattered, so the sky had no color. If you could stand on the surface of that water and look around, you'd see a brightly lit world, an ocean that looked like daytime, but it would be covered with a dark black sky. And then, if you were there when it happened, if you looked off toward the horizon, as I imagine it, you'd start to see a little band of pale blue just above the water. That band, that would be air starting to build up. As the day went on, the air would accumulate, it would get thicker and thicker. The top of the blue band at the horizon would rise higher and turn a darker shade of blue as more and more air collected and more light was scattered. Until finally, at the very top, around 60 miles above the water, the black sky would disappear. As Moses tells the story, on the second day of creation, God created the air. He made the sky. And to the people listening, this was Moses undermining those other religions again. He was saying that it was his God who created the sky, not some evidence of Marduk's power. And then day two ended. 
so far it seems like the story's gone slowly. There's no great battle scene, just a gradual progression. It's now the third day of creation, two days of the total of seven are done, and the world is just ocean and sky. God created light so things can be seen, and air so things can be heard. But that's it. This story, the way God made the earth, it's a little like watching an artist begin a painting. Things start in the background. You get the outlines, you get the tone. The story is building towards a climax. But this part? This is setting the stage. On the third day, the oceans, probably smooth and peaceful until now, those oceans start to move. Because day three is where God creates land. This seems like it would be quite the thing to watch. You can almost picture the smooth water starting to vibrate and boil, beginning to churn from earthquakes that might have been rumbling deep down in the floor of the sea. You can think of mountains rushing and surging up through the water and breaking through the surface. Suddenly islands appear, probably bursting out with such energy that tsunamis spread out in all directions. The closest I can get to this idea happened just a few years ago in the South Pacific. In 2014, about 30 miles northwest of the capital of Tonga, an undersea eruption began that lasted from December until January of the following year. By the end, the South Pacific had a new island. Moses doesn't talk about volcanoes and eruptions, but that's the closest I can get to land appearing. And while the idea of a volcano might not be right, from that new island in Tonga, you can get a sense of what the land itself could have been. If you look at pictures, there's not much besides brown land surrounding a large crater. Researchers studying the place say it's covered in some sort of sticky mud, and one early visitor talked about how the ground was still hot to the touch. For what Moses is describing, the whole world might have been like that. All of this, these new islands and continents within the last few hours, they were at the bottom of the ocean. They're wet and soggy. The ground is covered in mud and silt. You can imagine the whole place is hot, and steam is rising off the ground, making the place foggy and full of clouds and mist. Think about that picture for a minute, and then think about some of the other stories I mentioned. What Moses is talking about sounds like the same sort of thing the Egyptians describe at the beginning of their creation, when that island rises out of the sea. It's the same thing the Hindu talk about when they say the water at creation frothed, and land appeared. You can even see parallels from the Cherokee story about the beetle who brought mud out of the ocean to create land, or the Mixtec story where they remember the whole world was once covered in mud. These other stories seem to remember some details, some parts of this day of creation. But while painting the same picture, Moses is also breaking down those other stories. Just like God made the sky on his own on day two, here God made the land on his own. The Egyptians claimed the first god rose out of the water, standing on the first land. And here, Moses is saying God made the first land appear. Anything on it only came to the surface because God told it to. As Moses tells it, after the new ground came up out of the sea, God looks across that land, that muddy, silty surface, and he creates the plants. Bamboo can grow nearly three feet in a day, or about an inch and a half an hour. And as I imagine it, on this day, everything was like that. It's like those scenes in documentaries where they show some desert that's gone through a drought, some 
place where everything is dead and brown. And then a rainstorm goes through, and they show a whole prairie with grass or a hillside with wildflowers. Right here, I think the whole world being a little like that. Grasses were sprouting, trees were branching and putting out leaves and buds and fruit. And it's in the middle of this scene that God starts the study of botany. It's here that we get the definition of fruit as anything that has a seed inside it. This is how we decide that apples and cucumbers are both fruit. And in 1893, when the question was before the U.S. Supreme Court, it was this definition that declared tomatoes to be a fruit as well, though the court also decided they should be taxed as if they were a vegetable. At the end of the third day of creation, as Moses describes it, I think the world would probably be starting to look like the paradise a lot of people imagine. There were blue skies, there were beaches and ocean breezes, there were palm trees and other plants that were swaying along the shoreline. Except, something was still wrong. The day probably seemed right. But at night, when the light faded, that blue sky went back to black. The world was still empty. Up to this point, creation involved a lot of sorting and organizing. First, God separated the light from the darkness. On the next day, God sorted the water in the sea from the atmosphere above it. On the third day, God separated land from the ocean. For the first three days, the world that began formless was being formed. But behind the scenes, something else was happening too. As Moses was telling the story, he was assigning the accomplishments of those other gods to his own god. Each detail Moses gave was undermining the basis for the religions that surrounded him. And that was bad enough. But soon, as God moved on from forming the formless to filling the void, the story goes from just taking away the accomplishments of those other gods to going after those other gods themselves. This was the first half of what turned out to be a two-part episode on the creation of the world. In the second part, all of that pushing on the religions of Egypt and Babylon comes to the breaking point, and they're all ready to topple. If only Moses can prove it. In the meantime, if you have a question about something from this episode, or you're just curious to learn more, WiderBible.com has references, links, and show notes that are full of information I couldn't fit into the episode itself. The website also has a link for asking questions and a place to subscribe, so you can be the first to know when Moses gives the second half of the story. I'm Adam Scholl. Thanks for listening.